In the 2009 Mamoru Hosada film Summer Wars, the following words of warm advice are offered by a grandmother to a family torn apart. And if you remember nothing else, remember to find time together as a family, even when times are rough, especially when times are rough. There's no lack of painful things in this world, but hunger and loneliness must surely be two of the worst. In my own ministry working too, Clea, I've seen the power and grace of sharing meals together. We run a community cafe a couple of days a week, which was on a long break because of obviously COVID, but, but we're back and it's been so exciting because, you know, yes, there are those who come because they appreciate a free meal because, you know, a lot of folks up here on Net, uh, New Start and the like, and I mean, New Start, once you pay rent and a couple of other fixed expenses, there's not much there. So a, a free meal is great, but, you know, most are coming primarily for the community. And most people who come stay for a bunch of hours and, and I love it. You know, finally, it's like a bit of distinctiveness in the week, you know, that makes a Tuesday different to a Wednesday. But, you know, it's also just, you know, this time to, to sit and talk and eat and talk and sit and eat some more, you know, that, that you know, enjoying going somewhere where you're not going to get moved on from, you know, being refreshed by the forming and deepening of relationships, the hearing of stories, the learning about the area that you all live in together. And also appreciating the opportunity to make connections that can aid us all in the struggle to survive and flourish in often a harsh world. Given the preponderance of hunger and isolation in the modern world, it is little wonder that meal-based communities and dinner churches are on the rise in many places, both here in Australia and abroad. My guest today has spent time in a range of these communities and has brought together her experience and research along with theological reflections to write a new book on rethinking dinner, worship, and the community of God. Welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Darking Jung land by me, Liam Miller, he, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. My guest today is Kendall Vanderslice, a writer and baker who studies the intersection of food and theology. She holds an MLA in gastronomy from Boston University and a Master's of Theological Studies from Duke Divinity School. Her book, We Will Feast, Rethinking Dinner, Worship and the Community of God, is out now with Erdman's. Uh, Kendall also runs a range of courses on dinner churches and meal-based ministry, including how to do community and mission meals online. Uh, we talk about that a bit toward the end of the podcast. You can find out all of that at kendallvanderslice.com, where you can also get access to her Patreon, which has exciting newsletters and news and uh, resources. So please make Kendall welcome as we talk food, Jesus, and what happens when people eat together. Well, Kendall Vanderslice, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, just, just for our listeners, where are you, you know, talking to us from today? And uh, I guess, um, you know, what have you been just up to of late as you <laughs> navigate uh, COVID times? <laughs> yeah, so I am in Durham, North Carolina. Um, I've been living here for about three, a little over three years now. I run a CSA-style bread bakery, um, a community-supported bread share called Companion. Uh, so essentially people buy a bread share and they get a loaf of bread every week for 10 weeks, some of them for much longer. <laughs> um, so I spend most of my days, you know, split between the kitchen, uh, doing all of the baking and then at my computer doing lots of writing and 
and such. Yeah, great. Or oh, we can shout out shout out the bread share in the in the in the uh, episode notes if you'd like. Um, oh, good. Yeah. And I'll and I, I be, I be curious to maybe talk at the end because I know that you're working on a project around baking uh, mm-hmm. and faith. So so maybe we'll come to that at the end. But yeah, thanks yeah. for sharing that. I guess you can say you know you were into you know breaking baking bread. But, you know, before it was COVID cool, like before everyone oh, decided, yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to get into sourdough <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No. So I've been baking for, gosh, um, over a decade. About a decade ago is when I realized that's when I wanted to make it sort of my career. Um, so I've been in, and bread has been my my focus um, for the last probably five years or so. Okay. So COVID was just kind of like my time when I could finally <laughs> tell other people, here's how to do it. I'm so glad you all love what I do now. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's better than like, no, you're not allowed to. I've been here first. <laughs> no, no, it's, it was cool. I loved seeing everyone else love it as much as I do. Oh, that's great. Well, we're going to be talking today primarily about your book, We Will Feast, Rethinking Dinner, Worship, and the Community of God, which is out with Erdman's, and people should check it out. Really good read, and you'll see why as we talk today. Uh, but since we're going to be talking about food and, you know, as we're getting wading into the really serious, hard-hitting, uh, you know, investigative journalist questions that I'm going to, I'm going to be laying <laughs> out, um, we'll wade in easier. So, I was, there's a, there's a uh, Tom Waits, who's my favorite recording artist, is a great little like bit in a, uh, a live show where he talks about, you know, it's always good to put the names of people in, sh- in songs in case folks get lonely. And it's always good to put the names of places in case people get lost. And it's always nice to pack a lunch. Um, and then he sings a song about food. So, um, which is like 47% of his songs or something. So, um, so my question is, do you have a favorite song about food? Well, I think it's my answer is probably a little too on the nose. But I just truly, deeply love the song "We Will Feast in the House of Zion." <laughs> That's all that comes to mind when I think about a song related to food. So That's clearly, I uh, stole the title. <laughs> Not at all ashamed about it. <laughs> no, no, yeah, get it, get it where you can. That's great. All right, that's really good. So, so as we kind of move toward the the book, it's it's kind of thing when you when you start to read it, you you know, it strikes the reader, or at least struck me, is it's it's strange how little attention food and eating gets in theological reflection, given, you know, at a base level, just how much time in our lives is spent eating. Like if we, if we were to like add up minutes at the end of our lives, you know, obviously sleeping is probably going to be one, um, you know, and eating is going to be pretty close after. Yeah, um, yeah. That, so, so, you know, so, and, and to say nothing that it's an essential activity to our survival and to say nothing that it's something that shows up a lot in scripture. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so what drew you to thinking about food and faith? And I guess then what is to be gained by, by you know, for, for Christians of all persuasions, of, for pastors, for theologians, for, for whoever, thinking about um, or theologically thinking about the act of eating? Yeah, I mean, I... Um... I have just always loved food and loved to eat. So it was a pretty um, sort of natural outpouring. I um, I really had considered going into kind of the restaurant industry for a long time. I really wanted to be a professional baker. And I, um, when it came time to, you know, I graduated high school, I was really interested still in going down that path. And for a number of reasons, felt like I should probably get a college degree before a culinary degree because the culinary degree is pretty limited in what you can do with it. Um, and so while I was in undergrad, I 
I was able to start, um, I was in some anthropology, I studied anthropology, so way less practical actually than the culinary degree, but <laughs> I don't regret it. Um, but so I, I started reading anthropology of food and these other um, sort of ways of thinking about food beyond just the culinary arts and beyond just the thought of how do I cook it and how do I prepare it, but what does food mean kind of more deeply in the ways that society is structured and the ways that we as humans engage with the world around us. Um, and so with those questions, I couldn't really help but read that and ask, what does this mean for the Eucharist? What does this mean for the fact that a meal is this center point of the Christian tradition and sort of the center point of what Christ asked us as the church to do? And so that's sort of where it all started for me was first just a hunger and love for food, but then out of that, this, this question of, you know, it's, it's just everywhere in scripture. Once you start looking, it's everywhere. And I, I think it's one of those things that it's, it's so basic, it's so integral to our lives, and it's so integral throughout all of scripture that we just don't even really pay attention to it because it's, you know, it's, it's just always there. Yeah. And so you can't really, you almost overlook how prevalent it is. Um, so I, I think there's so much to be gained by thinking about it, though, because, you know, it's it's fairly new in human history that we have this ability to not spend most of our time thinking about food, right? Like, right now, if you add up all the time we spend eating, and it probably comes second after sleeping, but we don't even have to think about really time spent growing and harvesting and preparing to the extent that most every generation before us has had to. We have a lot of freedom you know, most of us in just going to the grocery store once a week and once every other week mm. and, you know, just grabbing what we need. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, it, yeah, I think you're right. It's such an upturn that now, like, one of the most, you know, common conversations I hear around food is like, you know, something like an intermittent fasting. It's like, actually, how do I eat mm-hmm. less? How do I spend yeah, yeah. less time? To, like, I'm down that, I'm, that, you know, how counterintuitive it would be to exactly to, to you know, except for this blip in human history that that's, the thing I, I'm curious because you say you say you came kind of through um, anthropology and then and then I know your graduate work was in um, I guess gastro gastronomy gastronomy <laughs> just a fancy I, way of saying food studies yeah, yeah gastronomy felt too short I was sure there was like two or three more <laughs> syllables before that's so why I got nervous um, what what did you feel like kind of coming at it from that angle to then kind of start thinking as you say about Eucharist and about the scripture and, and, and thing mm-hmm. was was there something you kind of gained by like you know, coming from this outside view that all of a sudden was like, oh, we haven't thought about that, but this conversation has been happening, you know, in this discipline for, for ages. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, so gastronomy is an interdisciplinary way of studying food, largely focused on anthropology and history. Um, so all of our work was really thinking about kind of how does, how do, how does humanity engage with food and how have we engaged with food? And so we were talking about the Eucharist in every single class that I was in, whether it was a history class, a literature class, an anthropology class, the Eucharist kept coming up. And for the most part, it was this very strange thing, like either in a historical context of like those weird Christians, they like say they're eating a human, um, or in an anthropology class, like kind of comparing and contrasting to other more cannibalistic forms um, of eating in, in different times and places. Um, and so it just sort of was a common theme throughout all of this coursework, but I was one of the few people really in my program that had any kind of personal connection to it, that, that was regularly partaking of it. And that also was thinking about it more deeply than just 
kind of as a ritual. And so I think, I think that brought a ton of helpful sort of perspective into then entering into these theological conversations because it helped me to say like, hey, we can talk about the Eucharist theologically, but I think we miss out on a lot when we don't first start with like, what is a meal? What does it mean that Christ gave us a meal? And what does it mean that Jesus was sharing a meal with the people he was sharing a meal with? And, um, and that the early Christians, like, what does it mean that they were all sharing meals together? And, mm-hmm. and so I, I think there was just, yeah, there's, it's also, I don't know, there's just a lot to be, a lot of different ways to think about it. And it's also, I think, just a lot more fun. Like, we can have, these theological debates are, like, they've gotten messy and really ugly <laughs> throughout history. But it's way more fun when you can start with saying, like, hey, what happens when we eat together? Yeah, totally. That's great. So, so the book was built from, like, a series of, um, you know, research into meal-centered communities, uh, you know, from all over the States. Um, what was that process like, you know, going and actually seeing and sitting with these different places? And uh, were there any, uh, any, I guess, big surprises along the way? Yeah. So I, let's see, there are, I think, 10 churches covered in the book. Um, one of them is the early church. So unfortunately, I didn't get to go, you know, take a field trip and uh, get to join them. I know, it really is. <laughs> Got to get that time traveling uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, little, a little sooner. Um, but so the others, I, I visited um, all of them in person, and it was really fascinating. I was doing this research um, in fall of 2016 and spring of 2017, so kind of right as the United States is beginning to contend with the reality mm. of um, our current president, and that was really creating tense conversations within the church um, either among Christians who suddenly felt very betrayed by the churches that they grew up in mm. or within churches who no longer knew how to talk to one another. And so it was very strange doing this research. Um, I visited churches that were across the United States, a range of geographic locations, a range of denominations, a range of um sizes large to small and so there were just there was a huge breadth of tradition and also location represented within the research and so the pastors that I met with and spoke with and interviewed and the people that I interviewed all landed in very different places theologically very different places politically and so it was very fascinating to see how the process of eating together created this platform for them to engage in really difficult conversations when sort of the cultural norm was becoming just being impossible to engage in difficult conversations. Um, And so I think that was probably one of the most shocking things was that as the country was becoming further and further polarized, these churches were sort of resisting that polarization and helping to nuance conversation and just create a space for the really hard, difficult topics to be addressed. Thank you for that. And I, I was going to ask you a question of why study the dinner church movement, but that really does, uh, <laughs> that gets at the heart of it quite well, that, you know, something created there as, as a space um, mm-hmm. is, is really fascinating. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I also think, I mean, I also think it's valuable to study in that, um, you know, I, I, I've been asked several times, like, do you think every church should become a dinner church? Or like, is dinner church the future of the church? And my answer is definitely no, I don't think so. You know, personally, I'm Episcopalian, and I really love 
you know, all the smells and the bells and the, like all the formality of the Episcopal church. And so, um, I don't want to give that up for, you know, solely (laughs) dinner church, but what I do think that dinner church reveals to us in this method of just the, the method of eating together as an act of worship and the relationships that can be formed in that process and the communal and spiritual needs that are being met in this process, I think reflect something really important back to the church about what's missing in our typical rhythms and what we could do better um, even within our more traditional churches. Yeah, thanks for that. And I think that is like a helpful thing with the book is like, it's not saying like, okay, now you have to scrap everything and this is the only model. It's like, (laughs) you might want to consider one of these models. Like you might want to do that. But like, even if you don't, like these are questions or investigations or like that, that will guide you well. Um, Yeah. So so early on in the book, you write this, um, when we eat, we experience the delight of the created order. We experience the sensory magnificence of our human bodies. We commune with one another and through this connection with all of creation. We commune with and delight in our creator as well. Now, kind of just go, jumping off the point we were just saying, this feels significant to all Christians, you know, whatever form of church they belong to. It seems like something that all Christians in all types of churches should consider and think about how to incorporate this kind of understanding into their piety and practice. So I guess... What, what advice do you have uh, for, for those who, who want to kind of center this delight, this communing mm-hmm. into our own life with food? Yeah, I think so often we think about our relationship to food in fairly negative terms. Even sort of our language yeah. of, um, of when we enjoy food, our language is not a positive one. It's usually a negative one. We talk about the foods that are our guilty pleasures, um, or we talk about the things that are an indulgence. And we cast even just the delight of eating and the delight of feasting in negative terms um, and, and seeing it as, you know, almost something sinful or something, you know, we, we, we use that as a term, like that something can be sinfully yeah. delicious. <laughs> and I think that that does so much harm because we see... Um, we see somehow the the delight of feasting as at odds with sort of Christian holiness, um, which is just not true and really just the opposite of how we need to approach it. Um, And, you know, we, we, this, this is reflected also in the ways that so often we talk about our bodies or our relationship to our bodies. And the reality is that we worship a God that had a body (laughs) and that, that like God taking on a human body is a significant part of the Christian story. And if we can't talk about our own bodies in positive terms and we can't relate to our bodies in positive terms and can't relate to the delightful and pleasurable aspects of being in a body, then, you know, we can't fully understand the God that created us and created us in bodies that feel and that taste and that delight um, so I think, I think starting by just recasting our language is really helpful. Um, and then just, I don't know, actually eating and enjoying, <laughs> enjoying food, eating with people and, yeah. um, yeah, when totally. it's safe, not eating with people right now, if it's going oh, to, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Everything with that disclaimer. Um, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, like the Messiah came eating and drinking, you know, and they yeah. were gluttonous in it. Uh, yeah, you know, so, exactly. right. People yeah. thought he was a glutton and a drunk and I mean. Mm. 
<laughs> that's what people thought of Jesus, then sure, yeah. let them think of me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. No, that's that's so helpful. I think that's that's a really yeah, exactly. It's okay to enjoy such things. We don't have to frame it always in I know, I know, I shouldn't, but mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. oh, thank you for that. Um another line that, that kind of struck me early on was um you have this. Uh, how can we worship a relational Lord if our worship itself doesn't build relationships? Now, the context here is about the powering power sorry, of centering eating together as an act of worship rather than kind of as an adjacent act of com- community that happens you know, next to worship. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk to us a little about the, the power of meals to create and foster friendship um, and, then, and then why this is something the church should pursue as, as central Mm-hmm. Um, rather than um, in addition. Yeah, yeah. So part of why, I mean, meals, again, going back to just the basicness of eating, meals are something that we all share, we all do, we all need. Um, and so there's just this kind of equalizing that takes place at the table where we are all meeting this common need together in the same way. Um, and there's, you know, the table can function to break down community. It can definitely be a place that where power dynamics are reinforced or where people who might already feel uncomfortable have that discomfort amplified. But when, when done intentionally with the express purpose of helping to welcome people in and to um, equalize a gathering, they can be really powerful. The, the, um, the vulnerability of the table, it, it can be very awkward and it definitely makes these dinner services very awkward at times, but that vulnerability also just creates space for conversation that might not ever happen um, or wouldn't happen as naturally in other contexts. And it also kind of um, makes those conversations a little bit less charged. You have something to do with your body. You have the safety of this table around you. You have kind of the safety of everyone sitting around, um, in the circular or rectangular space. And, you know, you, you can, if, if things get uncomfortable, you can like, you can look down at your food or you can get up and, and serve yourself another plate. Like there are things just for your body to do that help release that tension in these vulnerable moments. And it makes it safer to then, um, wade into some of these more vulnerable and difficult conversations. At the same time, I think when the church is gathering in such a way that meets needs, meets these needs of loneliness, meets these needs of hunger for those who are food insecure, um, it also provides safety for people to then express a little bit more um, intimately their own deeper needs um, in regards to loneliness and in regards to food insecurity. So it just kind of creates this cyclical pattern of people being welcomed into these vulnerable conversations, that, that that vulnerability helping to express a little bit more their need, which then enables people to meet their need in a unique way because everything around the way the church is gathering is kind of centering on all of these dynamics. Mm. So I think that's why having the meal be the centerpiece of church, why it works in these powerful ways. Um, but you know, I don't think that the worship itself has to be only a meal but I think that by identifying sort of the power that the meal has in that way, it helps us to better see that like these dynamics that the church can, can engage around the table are not just like handy add-ons. That's the central work of the church. The church is meant to be a, a place of respite for the lonely and a 
place that provides for these physical needs as well as spiritual needs. And the meal does all of that at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Thank you for that. And I think I'm remembering uh, it struck a chord as you were talking of like we were part of did a Bible study with a church that we were at a while ago. And one of the partly this was built by we were living in a small place that didn't have a lounge room, but we did it around the kitchen table. And like mm-hmm. I, I think it was one of the most productive and fruitful studies we've ever had. Because again, I think part of it is you have like things that make noise and like you know people can get up and open cupboards and move around mm-hmm. and 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 also just even from a posture standpoint you're not like on the couch like well it's starting to get yeah. late and i'm really zoned out in this Probably. couch and i'm getting yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's really crazy i mean i i always encourage people to think about like the next time that you're at a house party or at an event sort of like milling around which Again, it's not going to be as soon. But how? (laughs) Exactly. But like how quickly do you reach for a wine glass or a cup or something to hold on to, something to do with your body, something to sort of protect your body? It's like another layer of barrier between yourself and other people. That we want something that helps to kind of helps us feel less exposed or less Mm. vulnerable. And the table is a really great barrier. Because mm. you say the, the, the great thing with the glass is, oh, it's pretty empty. I better go and get another one. It's, it's a very easy mm-hmm. out of a conversation or, or what have you. Um, and I think the other thing that, that that your response raised was, you know, I often think about, you know, you know, when you read about like, you know, the, the pictures of the community and the gospels or then in Acts, there's always this sense of like, you know, the basic needs being provided. And then usually somewhere after that is the whole, is like a thing of like, and the Lord added to their numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, or when mm-hmm. Jesus talks about if you ask and seek and knock and all that, that's after he said, make sure the community is feeding everyone and looking after everyone yeah. and, and is reconciled. It's like, yeah, because like I think people are going to be much more freed to ask those bigger spiritual questions, much more equipped and able to, you know, consider their life in community and before God if they're not also, you know, if the mind isn't running with where are we going to get the next meal. Yeah, you know, exactly. The, so if we, if you are providing that, this place of respite, this place of safety and actually providing for these, you know, baser material needs, um, all of a sudden the, the, the ability to <laughs> ask those bigger questions and then the spirit's really able, really able to do its work, you know. So mm-hmm. I think um, that just, yeah, that struck a chord too. Um, and I think, yeah, really important um, what, you're, yeah. what you're working on there. Mm. I was just, I've been thinking a lot lately. So yesterday's um, Old Testament reading in the lectionary was the story of manna in the wilderness. And mm. so I, you know, was reading through it and it really struck me that at the end of sort of when God said, I will rain down, you know, bread from heaven and I will rain down the quails in the, in the evening. It ended with, so that you will know that I am the Lord, your God. And that, that God wants us to know first that God is the provider Mm. That, that God, uh, like God presents Godself as a provider first and foremost and providing for those physical needs. And that's how we know that God is, is all that God is. And so mm. that pro- like the church should also be this provider and this space of provision for these very basic needs, because how else can we know God if we do not first know God as this provider? Mm. Oh, thank you for that. Um, so during that last response, you started to talk a bit about loneliness. And I think that's, mm-hmm. That's important. And you have a chapter on loneliness, um, which which your own vulnerability grants that chapter a lot of power. It's 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 really um, striking. Uh, now, loneliness is 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 already such a potent factor in our communities. Like even pre COVID, that was something that that's mm-hmm. so much. You know, here in Australia and elsewhere, like this this loneliness epidemic that people are talking about more and more. Yeah. Uh, and I can only assume 
that it's got, you know, for most people, COVID has intensified it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you talk to us a little bit about that chapter, about St. Lydia's, which you study in that, and, and what the church can do to, to remind folks that we're, we're never alone? Yeah, yeah. I So I was really struck both in doing this research and then in sort of the year since the book has come out, um, just how much how significant loneliness is of a reality culturally and how much that affects people's experience of the church. Um, so the U.S. Surgeon, the former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy a few years ago said that he named it a public health crisis, loneliness as a public health crisis, and then it has like significant physical health ramifications. Our experience of loneliness is equivalent to smoking, I think it was 15 cigarettes a day, just in the ways that it affects our heart it affects heart disease, it affects executive function, all these other layers of things that are affected by these experiences of loneliness. And it's just wild to me that that the, that the church isn't sort of seeing that and addressing that broadly. Um, I mean, certainly there are churches yeah. that, that are thinking about it, but but the church should be the place where, you know, we we exist in community because we need community. And um, if the church is not a community that's really paying attention to that, then I think it's really lacking. Mm. And so St. Lydia's was born out of um, the founding pastor, Emily Scott's recognition that loneliness and isolation was so prevalent in New York City, um, that it was a city where people you know, were constantly surrounded by people, and yet it was hard to have someone over to sit at your dinner table, because most people didn't have a dinner table, um, or just hard to get together with people because the the transit system is so complex that, you know, to get from one side of the city to the next takes an hour and a half. And it's a lot when you're wanting to just get dinner with someone. Um, and so she wanted to respond to that loneliness and isolation. And so that's sort of what, what St. Lydia's was born out of. Um, but I, I've just been struck that at every, at every dinner church that I visited, um, from urban churches to rural churches to suburban churches, and in every community that I've spoken in since the book came out, came out, I have had people of every age, every generation comment to me, I experience such deep loneliness, and sometimes I never feel more lonely than I do at church. Um, and so I, 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 goodness, I can't imagine how much more prevalent that is in this particular moment. Um, and churches are even less capable of addressing that need in the moment because, you know, these virtual gatherings are in many ways terribly unsatisfying and necessarily unsatisfying. And um, I hope that there are ways, I think that there are ways that we can be creative still in um, in thinking about how to meet those needs. But um, yeah, I feel like I'm just rambling at this point. No, no, no. <laughs> it's, just, it's just such a significant... Mm. reality yeah yeah when you when you were saying you know yes some churches are dealing with it but like you know when, when you, as you if you name it as a public health crisis um you know it's it's i lament that i haven't you know you haven't seen denominational bodies stumbling over themselves to write you know theological <gasps> statements about loneliness yes, you know yes, they're, yes. You know, they're seeing much more fixated on other topics that do not yeah. need and, and I think there's, you know, it's it's hard because the, the church has also historically not been great in talking about um, marriage and family and mm. thinking in terms of um, of the broader 
church community as family. Yeah. And I think this is true in evangelical spaces and in more progressive spaces and mainline spaces. Um, I think that, that there's a just lack of ability to acknowledge that, um, you know, in, in traditional families and, and parents who are raising kids, there's a deep loneliness because there's this isolation in this season of parenthood. For single folks in the church, there's this intense loneliness and isolation because so many churches focus primarily on families and kids. Mm. Um, for, you know, those who are widows and widowers, there's a deep loneliness because especially when it's at an unexpected age, just a lack of recognition that mm. kind of these seasons of life make it really hard to bring people into contact with those who are different than them in ways that can address those loneliness. Um, and so that that's part of what I saw really unique about dinner churches was that they're so intergenerational mm. and that it was building these friendships across people that are in different phases of life. And it helped people to realize the ways that their unique phases enabled them to address the loneliness that existed of people in other phases. So we had um, at Simple Church, which was the church community I'm most familiar with, we had a single guy who was in his, you know, early twenties. Um, and he had, there was this four-year-old girl who was like, she had determined that he was her best friend and she would every night after the service, she wanted him to sweep with her. And so they became like the sweeping buddies. That was their job <laughs> afterwards every time. Um, and this four-year-old's dad was a single father and that his, so he now, while his daughter was sweeping with this other friend, was freed up to have adult conversation for kind of one of the few times in his week where he had adult conversation with others that wasn't about work, that wasn't about his daughter, that was just kind of just time for him. Mm. And so at the time that like this little girl's needs are being met because she just wants the joy of, you know, a young adult who thinks she's cool and this other guy's needs are being met because he just wanted time with kids because he spent so much time alone and just with other single folks in his age range. Um, but then at the same time, the single dad has this mm. unique need that. And so it's, you know, they're all able to meet one another's needs by being in this intergenerational context. Um, and that's just something that the, the church tends to stratify us by age yes. and by life, life phase. And that's exactly the opposite of what we need. A hundred percent. That's, that's so great. Thank you for that. Uh, so yeah, in the various communities you observed, uh, you know, you mentioned this kind of in the introduction that, that you know, none of these churches are like problem-free or challenge-free. <laughs> Were there yeah. any particular challenges that you saw kind of popping up again and again that kind of, you know, are made more unique to meal-based or meal-centered communities and any kind of, I guess, creative ways of, of meeting those that, that you also saw? Yeah, so the biggest kind of roadblock that everyone has to figure out how to contend with is just the financial aspect of it. Mm. Um, these churches are necessarily small and in a moment of church decline, it is very encouraging to sort of value that smallness, but funding a really small church is complicated, especially a church that tends to have as big of a range of um, just folks from various socioeconomic classes in them. Um, and so it, it, it was really hard. They can't sustain themselves for the most part through internal giving alone, and so for the most part, they were trying to think about how can we be creative so that we're not dependent on internal giving? Because actually, this dependence on internal giving might be something that is shaping the church in unhelpful ways. So I think one of the most creative ways, um, so Simple Church 
again, this, this church in Grafton, Massachusetts, uh, which is where my research began and where I, I actually worked there for a year. Um, they just built a series of trades that they as a church engage in. So the, the trade that I worked with them on was bread baking. So we would, we would bake bread together, um, on, on Thursdays, and then we would sell that bread at the farmer's market. And the, the farmer's market was in this kind of city center area. And the church where we met was just directly off of it. So we'd sell the bread in the farmer's market and it was a great time for community members to be a part of the actual baking process. They enjoyed coming to the market and helping to sell, but it also was a way of getting to know people within the community. And, you know, we would tell them, Oh, we're a simple church. We meet right over there. Come have dinner with us. You know, our service was just a few hours after the farmer's market ended. So we could just tell people like, take your stuff home and come back and join us. You'll get even more bread. Um, And so that just was a really creative way of meeting this financial need, but it also met some really important um, communal needs. People were able to get involved in unique ways, especially folks who wouldn't have been able to give financially to the church. They were able to give of their time and and help with the bread baking. And so that was just really significant. Um, But bread is not their only trade. They've also um, done some carpentry and woodworking. They have a farmer that attends the church church who they partner with and um he provides all the the produce that's used for the meal that they serve um they have done like website building and just a variety of other things it's a way to really just think about like what are the gifts and the talents that exist within our community Mm -hmm. and then how do we use those to meet these needs rather than just thinking in financial terms yeah that's really great and and as you say like you know standing next to someone in a market for however many hours, you know, is a great way to get to know someone who's part of your community. Maybe you haven't before or deep in a relationship because again, it's that kind of, it's, it's time, but it's often conversation you can have while I'm picking up a thing or it's, you know, they say like the best way to have a conversation with a kid is in the car because you're not looking at each other. It's in a similar (laughs) way, you know, you can, you can have a more vulnerable thing that's not as intense as like I'm sitting across from you, like let's have a talk. Um, that's great. No, I think that's really important. Obviously that's, you know, that, that, um, the funding thing is obviously a thing that, you know, fresh expressions as a general broad movement obviously Mm -hmm. have to face. So it's it's interesting to hear that as an approach. Um, a question I've been thinking about as we've been going, um, so, you know, and and, and kind of you're talking about the markets and and things like that and, and, and kind of jumping back to an earlier question, earlier quote about, you know, communing with God and with all of creation, um, Mm -hmm. And, and, and the particular time we live in now, like we, you know, we live in that time, as you say, that we don't have to really think about how we're going to get food, how it's going to be prepared, where we're going to get the time for that. We also less and less have to think about what food is in season. Um, mm-hmm. Now, like to some extent, I love this because our three-year-old's favorite food is watermelon and I live in an <laughs> age where I can get it at any time of the year. Uh, it's just always mm-hmm. in the fruit and veg shop or the, or the supermarket or what have you. But, you know, generally most foods have, have a seasonal quality and, I, and I'm curious about you know we're seeing a rise in that kind of maybe that farm the table that kind of more um, market locally produced stuff which would then naturally um, require a bit more of a attention to that kind of seasonal ebb and flow of what foods are available and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that as again its own way of kind of attuning ourselves to this world as created um, mm. and created in a particular way compared to kind of a more um, managed world where we have Found, figured out ways to hack, um, yeah. to, to often to great uh, ecological cost, found ways to hack um, hack the system. 
Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the church already operates on this like calendar that, that shifts with the seasons. The liturgical calendar kind of carries us through the narrative drama of the gospel over the course of the year. Um, and our seasons do that as well. Our seasons, we go from, you know, winter is this time of death that then leads us into spring, which is a time of new life. And the foods that are available in those times also kind of cause us to think about um, this relationship between death and resurrection and um, just the role that these these necessary times of of kind of fallow fields and of more fruitful fields are are part of how we eat and how we get good things out of the ground and I think that when we when we lose sight of that we lose sight of I think these larger ways that um, just kind of these cycles of life and death and these cycles of provision and, and times of feast and times of famine are just part of the rhythms of the, the world and of creation and also are a reality that um, people have been dealing with throughout the whole, the whole story of scripture, you know, is, is a story of people engaging with these same realities and these same, these same concerns and fears of, you know, is it going to rain? Is it not going to rain? Are we going to have food? And, and it's also stories of God working within these cycles, but then also sort of jumping in and, and disrupting those cycles. Like again, back to the story of manna of, of God just saying, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. going to totally disrupt this whole cycle. Like you can play all you want and I'm just going to rain that bread. Um, so I, I think there's, you know, just huge potential in, in helping churches to kind of rethink about these rhythms and these cycles and these, mm. these shifts. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I guess one kind of last question is, you know, we've, we've been obviously touching on COVID throughout, but, you know, you could have had no anticipation that when you were writing this book that probably all nine of those um, communities that you visit are not meeting currently or I don't know whether yeah. they are or yeah. not, but most likely they've had to have some break uh, and most churches have had to go online and, mm-hmm. and most restaurants or a lot of restaurants are closed or at least people yeah. aren't going to, like, you know, like the, the, the this disruption that is probably, you know, one of the things that's been hit the most is is public, you know, obviously public gatherings, but particularly public gatherings around food. Um, I guess, you know, if you were like all of a sudden that like, urban's were like, quickly, we need to put a little afterword on uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> just to address this matter. Um, like obviously things will emerge and change again. Um, mm-hmm. But do you feel like, you know, if anything, you're like, and the book, the book is all the more important. Like this, this movement is all the more important. We're just going to have to figure something out. Um, and you know, it's pointed to this. You know, the, you know, the, an issue that was kind of latent is now right on the mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. on the surface. And this is again, you know, all the more vital. What, just any thoughts you've had uh, as you've kind of been doing these speaking engagements or or rethinking about the book? Um, you know, just yeah. in this moment of like. Wow, didn't see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that the book is all the more important in this moment. I, I think um, in one sense, it helps us to better understand why the loneliness and unsatisfaction of our separation is so significant, um, because it helps us to really think through what it means to be created for embodied relationships and created for this, this need to sit together and be together. Um, so I, I think it helps us to understand some of what we're feeling and experiencing right now. But I also think that, um, you know, the whole focus is on like, how do we rethink and be creative and be a bit innovative within the context of tradition, which is what everyone's having to do now. And so I, I think kind of a barrier 
of the book up until COVID was that people just didn't want to rethink the way that they were doing things. And even just having the word rethinking in that title, people were like, uh, you know, this, this is great for some people, but like my church is cool. How it, how it is. Yeah, easy um, does it. Easy. Exactly. <laughs> but it's like, everyone has to rethink now. So yeah, <laughs> what do totally. we do? Nice. Um, and so I, I have been doing a lot of um, work on helping churches to host virtual meals, um, virtual oh, cool. agape meals, because, um, I mean, the other, the other strange piece of it is that we are having to really rethink and re-understand the role of communion within the yep. church. Um, as churches are deciding, you know, do we, do we do it virtually? Can we do communion virtually? Um, do we abstain for six months or more? Um, you know, what, what is the, what is the ramification of just not taking communion for this long? Um, and so it, I think, is a space to also help us creatively think through, like, how do we, yeah, how do we be creative in this moment? And so these virtual meals have been a really helpful sort of way to help churches step in and um, and meet some of those communal needs and spiritual needs that exist within their, their congregation that can't be met in just translating their traditional service into a virtual setting. And so that yeah. has been really exciting to be able to um, see churches really receptive in a way that they wouldn't necessarily have been just to dinner church. And I think looking forward, when we are able to finally gather together once again, I think there's going to be a long season of grief and reflection and um, just thinking about how do we how do we move forward? Um, you know, it's, it's not, we, we realize now there's not just going to be one day that we're all able to meet back in our normal, normal manner. Um, you know, we, we, my church has been gathering again just for the last few weeks for outdoor services. Um, and it's very, very apparent who's missing. We have, um, a, a congregation that generally skews much older. And so, there's only a handful of us that are younger and we're pretty much the only ones going because we have to sit in the cold in the morning, yeah. you know, and, and, um, still take on a bit of risk to do this. Yes. And so it's just very apparent that like, okay, our, our season of grief and of wrapping our minds around like what is happening and how is this changing our world and how is this changing our church communities is going to be, I think, pretty long and extended. And I mm. think that these dinner churches, um, and this dinner church model creates, a space for churches to wrestle through these questions and to grieve and lament together as we move forward. So I do think that there will be, um, I still, you know, I still don't think that dinner church is the future of church, but I think that there's a really, there's going to be a really um, specific need for this kind of gathering in the coming years. Yeah. Thank you for that. Well, the book is We Will Feast, Rethinking Dinner, Worship, and the Community of God. And as Kendall said, we all need to do some rethinking. Um, it's an excellent book. It's it's really helpful the way it's, you know, based around the research, um, you know, good investigation into, you know, food and the Bible, um, like a wide range of communities, as, as Kendall said before, and and very readable and and just 100%. Um, you should check it out and get it if you haven't already. Uh Kendall, how else can people connect with you and and yeah, give us a little hint about what we should be looking forward to uh, coming coming off your off your desk in the next little while. Yeah, so the easiest way to find all of my different sort of avenues is at my website www.kendallvanderslice.com. Um, and through there, you can sign up for, I have a monthly free newsletter called Edible Theology uh, that is a collection of essays on food and faith, as well as recipe and my own reading recommendations and podcast and media recommendations around the web. Um, and then I also have one additional monthly um, paid newsletter that I send out um, 
that is also called Edible Theology, but you can support me through Patreon and then you get that second right. newsletter as well. Um, also, if you're in the Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, North Carolina area, you can get my bread through your companion bread share. Um, and finally, I have um, a website, edibletheology.com, where you can also sign up for the newsletter, but um, find courses and curriculum that help pastors think through how to start dinner churches and meal-based services within their own community. So yeah, those are sort of the, the various places to find me. Um, but I'm doing a lot of writing right now on bread. So hopefully there will be some, hopefully there will be some, some bread book news in the not too far future. Is the, um, like people want to know about the agape meals, the virtual meals that on the edible theology side as well? That, yep. That's yeah. uh, on edibletheology.com. And all of it is linked from, from Kendall Vandersize. They all kind of interlink with one another, but well, I do have an online course that, um, oh, cool. that gives you all the information you need to start a virtual agape meal. Oh, excellent. Well, so th those links will all be in the show notes, but they're pretty simple websites, so you might be able to figure it out <laughs> even without that. Uh, Kendall Vandersize, thank you so much for coming on Love, Rinse, Repeat. It has been a blast. I've learned a lot, and it's, it's, it was a lovely, fun, bubbly interview for, for the start of a Tuesday morning. So thank you so much for that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.